Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, and Marcus, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Welcome, coffeeis, me listeners welcome to another episode of our beloved podcast at least i hope it's beloved i mean why would you listen to this if it's not beloved and today i don't have a guest guest i have somebody who came back and his name is marcus young welcome marcus hey valerian hi everybody it's great to be back and i hope um i hope valerian we can find more opportunities to collaborate on these because I always have a really good time. Well, I missed you and I'm sure that listeners missed you too. And uh, yeah, we will do that. Also depends a little bit on them, right? Yeah, of course. I think that's that's really the guest today, right? Is our listeners who sent us some really great questions over the last couple of weeks. So I think that's super cool. Absolutely. And I was really excited when I heard the first one because you take a risk with this kind of like announcement. Are there going to be people who are willing to share their beautiful voices with us, right? Of course, of course, yeah, but we have, what, seven really great questions queued up here and it was great to see some really familiar faces and friends um, sending some questions as well as some folks that are new to me, so that's really cool. So if you don't know what we're talking about, just go to coffeeis.me website, our podcast website, and there's a little link where you can leave your message. And as a reward, you can leave also a plug to your project, to your Instagram, to your Facebook, to your website, whatever. And just to let you know, there's only three ways you can have a plug on this podcast. One, the simplest one is you pay up, right? You have to pay for an ad. You don't have too many, but sometimes they happen. The second way is that, you know, a guest or us mentions you because you do amazing product or very bad product or very bad service. So we mention you on the podcast. And third, the easiest way is when you go to coffees.me website and leave us a question, right? Absolutely. It's a really cool opportunity to not only... um hear what we have to say about variety of topics, but also tell the world a little bit about who you are and, and what your work is, be it in coffee or music or elsewhere. So I'm getting ahead of ourselves, giving away a little bit about some of the, some of the little product plugs we might hear today. No, I just, I just wanted to emphasize this because you know, you get a free plug. My gosh, whoever gives you a free plug on a podcast, you know, it's like, it's so rare. Like, maybe not even existent, but we love you guys. And that's why you have this opportunity for a free plug. And of course, I mean, like, if, if I can be nasty a little bit, if you would have to pay for consultancy at, let's say, Boot Coffee or just hire Marcus, that would cost you money too, right? So this way you can have even your question answers for free. So just go ahead, be brave, go to the website, leave us questions. And that's all for the plug. So welcome back, Marcus. And we didn't record this podcast live for a long time. Even this one is recorded over uh, a call because we both are super busy. Um, What happened with you, man? What happened with you the last year? Wow, the last year has been 
I think, amazing and intense for everybody as we come out of COVID. I think um, for me, the biggest professional news is I, I've actually stepped away from Boot Coffee. And I am so happy, Valerian, that you have stepped into that role. Um, I I left to take an opportunity with the company Cropster that provides all kinds of technology solutions for coffee roasters and coffee producers and coffee cuppers and labs. So I'm working there as a demand generation manager. And what that really means is that I'm focused on content and education and events and outreach to make sure that Cropster um, is front of mind with all of our potential clients and our current users. Why did you leave us? Why did you leave us? <laughs> um, new challenges are always interesting, right? And I've long admired Cropster and the work that they do. I think um, they're providing a, an important tool and a service to the industry. It's a company run by a group of people that I have great respect for, having known them for 10 years, maybe. Um, and a company that seems to make very smart decisions, very um, measured decisions, and is, is a thought leader because they're really providing tools and letting the experts sort of rise to the occasion, which, I mean, hopefully folks that have worked worked with me at Boot Coffee and elsewhere in my career have known that I... I like to see the success of the people that I'm working with. That's my greatest pride. I don't need to take center stage. So it, it just felt like a good fit for a lot of reasons. Amazing. Well, congrats on the position. And uh, we're already missing you. I'm already missing you. Um, well, as you already guys heard, I stepped into Marcus's left shoe because, of course, filling up his ball shoes is super hard. I mean, it's after all Marcus Young, but uh, I'll try to do the best at boot and all happened so fast and unexpectedly to me, I have to say. I'm still puzzled, like what exactly happened? You know, when somebody comes and just slaps you and run away and you go like, why, what, wait? <laughs> so. Well, I, I'm so excited for Boot Coffee to have you, to have you there, Valerian, because yeah, I think Your, your metaphor of stepping into a shoe is a good one because there's a lot of things that needs to be done and stepping into maybe the systems and processes I put together is great. But with that other shoe, I'm going to just beat this metaphor to death. But with that other shoe, um, you're going to bring something new and something really special and your experience and your career and your curiosity and all of the delicious and interesting things that you make. and projects you pursue on your own will be such a huge benefit to to anybody coming through boot campus i hope so uh we had the first course live course and it was so much fun to just you know be with people and i i finally realized why you loved this job so much you know even though it's super taxing and very hard and kind of you are really tired end of the day but having great students and people are interested in the same passion you are, it's, it's so rewarding. It's really, really amazing. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I, I wouldn't have left for any position that didn't allow me to still have those conversations and those connections with both the people that I've met and know and care deeply about um, through my career, but also meet, 
new people and continue having that um, that aha moment and building that friendship over something so delicious and something that can have such an impact. So it's it wasn't an easy call, but here we are. And I think everybody's in good hands. And you listeners are also in good hands because we are ready to answer your questions. But before that, a little personal thing. I'm traveling to Europe soon. And if you guys know great cafes I should visit in Paris or Lisbon, let me know. Just drop me a little email. Of course, I can Google them, but a, a good recommendation is always great. So thanks. And let's move on. Let's go to the first question. Are you ready, Marcus? I'm ready. Let's hear what our listeners have to ask us. So the first listener is Andy. And Andy is amazing because he really was the first, first, first. So let's listen to his question. Hi, Valerian. Hi, Marcus. My name is Andy. And I have really been enjoying the podcast. I'm just eating them up left and right. Um, here's my question. I would like to open a roastery cafe. And what I'd like to know is what do you look for in a good location? Foot traffic, you know, uh, cars driving by downtown, near schools. Like, what do you look for? What makes a good location? Uh, what makes a location desirable where you're going to attract people and get get people there easily? So that's my question. Thanks. Well, thank you, Andy, for your question. Um, Marcus, you want to take the lead on this? Oh, boy. This is, uh, this is a big one. Um, I think I have as many questions back to Andy, maybe, <laughs> as we have answers, which if those of you who know me, that's a trap I often fall into. Um, so I'm just going to pose some of those questions because I think for listeners, it's considerations that I would want to be making as I was seeking out a space for a new business. Um, you know, and the first is they're planning to open a roastery and cafe. So my question is, um, are those going to be in the same location with your roastery? What sort of in your business plan and in your, even just in your dream, what percentage of that business is going to be wholesale or coffee that you're roasting for other people versus how much of it is it going to be roasted just for your cafe? Um, because I think answers to those questions are going to drive some decisions right away. Um, you know, if you're planning a large roasting company with a lot of wholesale accounts and a cafe, that's sort of a showroom for your business, the answer might be very different. You know, you might be able to get away with being in a more industrial area, an area out of the way where your cafe is more of a tasting room, kind of a showcase for, for what you can do. And your primary revenue is going to be coming from roasting. I think, you know, for many people though, they want this, this dream of a cafe, a busy, vibrant place where the community gathers and you happen to be roasting on site to give some of that intrigue and mystique I mean, that's going to drive decisions as well, because where can you get permitted to not just have a retail store, but have a retail location where you're doing production as well. And all of the permitting that goes along with um, environmental quality and smoke abatement, plus retail food, plus food manufacturing. So I, I kind of start at that very baseline level and have a lot of questions. Um, I have comments about the second part of his question with foot traffic or versus downtown traffic counts in schools as well. But Valerian, what, what, why don't you share some of your ideas too? 
Well, I can share my previous experiences and mistakes. And also like nowadays when I try any project, I always envision, I think in marketing, they call it the avatar. So who is your customer? And just imagine, you know, a woman, a man, you know, who are these people who are going to buy your product? Uh, how is their day when they wake up? You know, what, what, what are their jobs? And when they consume their coffee and how they consume their coffee. And based on that, you can have an idea that, you know, where these people congregate and finding a right spot for that. So playing with this kind of avatar thing is really, really helpful. And when I heard it first time, I was like, what a BS, you know? And I don't know, I, once I did this exercise in my head and I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. This is really, really helpful. So, you know, it's a good game you can play and you can try it out on, on you know, as a thought process. Yeah, I, I love that, Valerian. And I think, you know, you can extend that a little bit too and and think about, hey, are there coffee companies that you um, really admire, you know, maybe in other communities or in other towns, you know, do you, do you want a cafe that's more like a, a Starbucks or more like a super trendy you know, third wave outpost, you know, do you mm-hmm. want to have a drive through or is it just like a simple walk-up counter? I mean, I think that can also help guide some of those decisions and maybe help folks think about that, that demographic question, that avatar question. So in my past, I did actually three places. I was thinking about it when I was thinking about this question, I just kind of run them down. The very first one was, I call it the hidden place. This was my first roasting company. We had a cafe in a, a new newly built shopping mall, but the roastery was hidden, was out of sight. Uh, the reason was simple. We did not want to, the authorities bother us. It was, <laughs> it was in the 2000s in Slovakia and it was very famous, you know, the tax office and who are always find you and just bother you. So we didn't want them to bother us in the roastery. So we had the hidden one. Actually, it's the best uh, idea. But again, we had uh, our cafe in a shopping mall. The other one, which we did now with the Green Plantation, we actually have our location out of the city, out of the town. But there is added value to that because we have a big land, a big garden with fruit trees and vineyard. And we have the roastery there. And also we have a cafe and a bakery, which is not ours. We rent it out, but uh, we work together. And, you know, during COVID, this place saved our bottoms really seriously, because we have the garden. So any times they had to be shut down, people can, could come to our garden. So we could still kind of sell coffee most of the time. And yeah, that, so that's one, th- one thing which we made a mistake there. We should have thought about more parking because we did not know that it's going to be so popular. So uh, yeah, if you go out or anywhere, it's just think, you know, if people have to drive there, just have parking. And a third thing which I ever did, and maybe that's not applied to you, was Unleash Coffee. And it didn't have anything. It did not, not have a roastery. It did not have a cafe. It was just uh, online, right? Because we used a co-roasting place because we sold mostly online. And now the new owner started to sell on farmer's markets, a very smart decision. And Kelly is killing it. She has a really good time and connects with the community. So that was a mistake we did. We never did that and we should have done that. So Kelly is smarter than us. <laughs> she, the Elish Coffee is in a good hands. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, we with 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 the company as I've started, um, I think we followed a similar path in in Kigali, Rwanda when we started Question Coffee. Um, our original outpost was just like a 
a very nice, like finished, but sort of basement location down a side street with some other offices um, as the cafe. And we had built enough of enough business doing local markets and community events and things that we, we got some foot traffic. Um, but boy, after I, after I left that enterprise and handed it off to the next generation to run, they moved to a much more high profile kind of in the city, urban, like walkable location. And it's a beautiful cafe that because of the traffic, because of its proximity to larger office buildings and things and other restaurants has really grown that brand. Um, so yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's really just a dependent on what you want to build. Um, yeah. But you know, to, to the specific questions, right, about looking at foot traffic, if you're downtown or near a school, traffic counts, you know, I think all of those things can matter and are important. Um, you know, downtown versus near a school versus, um, you know, in a more suburban or even rural area or small town. I think that's really up to the the operator and what they want to create. That gets back to that avatar. But mm-hmm. you know, I think that foot traffic is important, parking which you mentioned and traffic counts. I 100% wouldn't wouldn't sign a lease on a retail space without contacting the county or the city and understanding traffic flows and mm-hmm. traffic counts without sitting there myself watching how people are using the location currently or your neighbors what kind of, you know, what that traffic counts are, what the times of day are. Um, yeah. I think looking at what the bigger players have done, I mean, be it companies like a, a national juice bar chain or a fast food restaurant, they've studied these traffic patterns. They know where the hot real estate and the people are going to come in, that, where that's going to be located. Same thing with national chain coffee companies. I'm not afraid of them. And I think you can open a few doors down or a block away with, and, and actually have a benefit from that because Absolutely. they've built that market. They've have people in the habit in the area of going out to coffee. They've also studied all of those demographic and traffic flow and details um, that us lowly individuals probably don't have the resources to invest in that, you know, a company like like the big green company that has an entire team of people studying this. I mean, totally. Uh, one thing which I would be careful about, like it's not only about how much food traffic there is, but what is the food traffic doing? Imagine an amazing food traffic, people going home from work, excited to get home. Those will not stop in a cafe, right? So it has to be a place where actually that food traffic will stop and enjoy the beverage or anything, right? And Marcus had a great point that having the competitor, the, for example, the green one is great because, you know, they do dark roast. You do you. And you definitely will have a different vibe of the cafe. You will def- have different, definitely different coffee, most likely, right? Why would you copy something which already exists? So people will go and make a choice. And I can even imagine also group, groups of people going and they like discussing where should we have coffee today? And people also like change. Many people like to try different things. So I would be totally not afraid of uh, a competitor. 100%. And, and I think just to wrap this up, um, Valerian, when you said, you know, it's not all about foot traffic, it's the kind of traffic. I think that's doubly important. Um, you know, there are places in every city that are incredibly well trafficked. They're probably in urban core. Um, 
you know, there might be a lot of business people there, but there's very real challenges there. The rents are often very high. So you have to do huge volume just to break even on the space. Um, oftentimes in these areas that are super, super busy, your labor costs also become very high. And if you're just turning over cups of coffee all day long, and at the same time, you're having to manage just the flow of people coming in and wanting to use your bathroom or camping out at your tables, but not buying anything, that's a very real labor cost. Um, and the competition, because you know, if you're the only person on the block, that's great. You might have enough people on the block to drive your business forward, but you know, in an urban core, people may not walk two blocks if they have to cross like a busy intersection, for example, or if it's a, a street with a with a bad reputation, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I still say go for it, but those are some some things that I would watch out for. I've seen a lot of successful businesses not be able to pull off those kinds of spaces. Yeah, uh, definitely have to afford a place. That's not you know don't go crazy when you know place is too expensive you have to learn the craft so just take it easy but here's a funny story uh when i was working in bosnia herzegovina long long time ago i was in a croatian part on north and there was a town called orashia it's a tiny town it's a tiny tiny town and they had cafe after cafe after cafe after cafe and i was wondering how these guys can make money they offer almost the same coffee, actually. You know, there's this Italian brand, you know, imported. And and I asked once my friend, it's like, well, that's what we do. We walk around and try different cafes. And we have in each cafe, we have different kind of set of friends. And we just hook up with them. I was like, wow, what a great idea. So uh, more like many, many cafes survive because of different kinds of communities hang around in them. All right, let's move on to the next question, which is from Katie. Hey, what's up? My name is Katie. Uh, I'm a musician and I'm from Maryland. And my question for you is, what is the single best cup of coffee each of you has ever had in your entire lives? Each, you can only pick one. Uh, I'm really curious to hear what it is um, and why. And if you want to find me on Instagram, uh, you can follow my music account. It's at Katie Tish Music, K-A-T-I-E-T-I-C-H Music. And also check out my songs on Spotify. They are all fueled by coffee. All of those recordings wouldn't be here if it weren't for the lovely nectar of the gods that is this caffeine. So check out my odes to coffee on Spotify. And thanks for answering my question. Wow. Very cool. A perfect use of... Um of a little pitch. I've looked at Katie's Instagram now a couple of times and I encourage others to as well. It's really cool. I'm like, wow, this is a perfect use of this question. She's super smart. This is, this is really cool. She utilized it perfectly. And uh, I didn't check her out yet, but I will. Uh, and definitely will play your music in Boot Coffee Campus. Put you in our playlist, yeah. So, Marcus, you go first. Single best cup of coffee I've ever had, and I can only pick one. Um, hoo, hoo, hoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just get trapped. I get trapped thinking about great cups of coffee in beautiful places. I get trapped by experience as much, like everything outside of just the flavor on my palate. Um, so it is really a tough question. Um, I'm going to say that maybe the best cup of coffee I ever had, and it's 
a combination of elements was the first time I had um, coffee in a jebana, like prepared as part of the Ethiopian coffee ceremony in Ethiopia, um, in a farm with um, the popcorn and the coffee roasted right there on site and ground with the mortar and pestle and produced in the traditional jebana. That's the, the clay pot that they brew coffee in and served in the little cups. Um, was it maybe the most delicious coffee that I ever had in my palate? Um, probably not, but is that where coffee begins and ends? Absolutely not. It was the entire experience and it was the care. It was the being part of what I felt like was a much longer tradition. It was the location being on the farm where the coffee was grown and where this woman had, had grown up and learned this from you know, probably her mother, hands down, that's, that's the most memorable cup of coffee that I, that I've ever had. And I had had Ethiopian coffee ceremony coffee before at restaurants and tourist things, but this was a farmer making me coffee on her family's farm. And that was so special. Dude, I have goosebumps. What the answer? Wow. <laughs> Love it. No, it's, it's so true that many times the experience itself gives you the best, right? It's not that it coffee cups at 93 point. It's the coffee plus the experience plus the people. It's just like, wow, lift the whole thing up. Good. I, I wish I thought about something like that. I didn't. <laughs> but, but okay. I've been wrestling with this question now for 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 days. So it's um... <laughs> but you came just you came in like I'm thinking about this and let me think and you just come come up with this question this answer I was like you you didn't just think of it right now right No but I mean it but it, but I I did <laughs> I did make the decision to to name that of all of these great coffee experiences I've had in my career from coffee's far above 90 points also at farms to um you know to this experience to robustas in really interesting circumstances and yeah this this is the one this is the one that just kept coming back to me awesome now it's beautiful and my best coffee and i wouldn't say the best coffee but also most memorable i'm sorry i don't remember my best coffee on my palate it just yeah i don't know but the most memorable because it comes up comes with a story was actually here, not far away uh, from the boot lab, very close. There's a roasting company called Equator's Coffee. And Equator Coffee, they uh, used to have these kind of small sessions when they were smaller, where they invited people from area to taste coffees. And a dude who was organizing this is called David Paul. Many of them, many of you in the industry know this name, right? So it's uh, he's a well-known coffee professional, but at that time he was, I think, director of the coffee at Equator Coffee. And he did this small session and me and my dad, we came to check it out. I was, it was my first year in California, I think. And my dad came, then my mom came visit and with my dad, we had this kind of boys out. And, you know, my first company, uh, which I ever did in 2000, what was it, 2001, 2002, we were doing dark roast. So, you know, I was in Darko. So I came to Equator and they offered these, you know, set of coffees and we tasted them. And David then asked, you know, which coffee did you like the best? So we said, what I like the best? Turns out it was Sumatra. And he said, and he asked, which coffee you did not like? And I pointed out at one 
coffee and he was like, oh yeah, why? I was like, it was super weird. It was so freaking weird that I don't even understand this. And he was like, well, that's our most expensive coffee. It was Ethiopia. <laughs> I was like, what? Why is that most expensive? Oh, well, just think about it. Take a sip and think about the florals. Think about, you know, the citrus. And you really can taste the oranges and the, and, and the jasmine and, and the bergamot. And I was like, holy cow, he's right. And I was like, wait, are there coffees, are there coffees like this? Are there more coffees like this? And he said, of course. So this one day changed everything in me about coffee. I was like, okay, stopping dark roast from now on. We're focusing on something else. Started to my path to discovery of specialty coffee and just changed my life. That one meeting that, or that one session they used to do uh, created Green Plantation, Unleash Coffee, coffeecourses.com, me working with Boo, doing this podcast, everything. So I hope, you know, I don't know. This is my story of one special, special coffee. I, I love that, Valerian. Um... It, it makes me think, I, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but so we don't have to go in, but it makes me re- recall the time we were at the San Francisco Coffee Festival serving people coffee A and coffee B and asking them which they preferred and which was the more expensive. And we had a coffee that was around, you know, $10 um, for 350 grams. And we had a coffee that was easily $100 for 350 grams. And the the lion's share, more than 90%, both preferred the less expensive coffee um, and also thought that it was the better quality coffee. So I think it's it's such an important thing to remember and it's such a way to hook people and then take them along on this journey with us, just to be very open-minded and free-form and, and letting them express their experience of, of maybe two different coffees. Exactly. Well, Katie, thank you so much. Again, I'm putting your music on our playlist. All right, next question is from Hassan. Hi, how are you? I would like to ask a question. What's the proper or the best time for drying? It's to be five minutes enough or more, six minutes. And the mayored phase. Uh, also, I I like to know what's the good time for mayor phase before first crack. Is it enough two or three minutes and the drying five minutes? Can I use this uh, points to get good roast? There's a lot packed into that question, Hassan. Thank you. Valerian, what are you? What are your thoughts? Do you want to take this one to begin with? It's hard because I know you are much better at this than I am. You know, to be honest, you know, I feel that Hassan is looking for some kind of recipe which I don't have. Honestly, for me, you know, I'm I, when I learned to roast. For me, we used to use these uh, aromatic milestones. You know, the but boot. I don't know if it's a property of boot or not. You know, the different stages and. You know, I like to have my hay slash, yeah, hay stage on four minutes. Is is that the drying, Marcus? Is that when the drying ends at hay or at bread? Yeah, I think for me, drying, when we sort of talk about it in those development phases, um, right, this is, these are concepts that come very much from the, the writer and thinker about coffee and consultant um, Rob Hoos, who in his book on... Um, modulating the flavor of coffee 
speaks about these these phases, the drying phase being from the beginning of the roast until yellow, the Maillard phase being from the, that, that yellowing point up to first crack, and then the development. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking of them kind of in as ratios of the entire roast, but also in, in kind of relative times, like Hassan asks about here. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. That, um, that drying phase would be from start of roast to yellow. Okay. Um, I, I think a, a difficulty of discussing this, though, is, you know, as an industry, we don't have a standard of what what do we say is, is yellow yellow for all of us. Right. Right. I've talked to many roasters and and their yellow is the beginning of the coffee beans turning yellow. Others, it's sort of a mottled greenish to yellow stage. For me, it's when there's clearly no green. When I smell it, there's no moisture really like aromatically in the coffee and it's clearly all yellow. Um, right. So if you're calling it something a little bit different, Valerian four minutes might make perfect sense for me. I'm usually closer to five or six, but it just might be that I'm calling something yellow. That's like, that's a, a physically different characteristic of the coffee. You know, the thing is that for me, I much more focus on the rose development. So, you know, I'm, want to know where my first crack is and how long the development is. I mean, the rest of the stuff is not that much important to me because the most important how how long did it took to take to get to the first crack, right? It can be three minutes, which I would say, okay, this coffee will be un, not developed, you know, or it can be, I don't know, 14 minutes when, again, it's too long. And also it depends, like, what do I want to do with that coffee? Do I want to do a light roast with, you know, nice punchy acidity? Or do I want to do... You know something which is more mellow, and let's say coffee from Getco has acidity, right? So I want to mellow it out, or I want to do a dark roast, which I would pick something else. But really, I mean, I really focus on the, on on the roast development and the first crack. Is is that something which I'm copying out or what? Yeah, I I I don't think so. I mean, I think it's there's a lot going on in roasting, and to to come back to Hassan and to give him something to take away. Um, and I'll, and I'll answer your question in a minute, Valerian, but Hassan, I challenge you just to continue tasting every roast, taking really good notes of every roast that you perform, tasting that coffee, reviewing your tasting notes to what happened in the roaster and coming to some of your own conclusions on this. Um, I can't tell you what's a good roast. Um, as Valerian said, I don't know how you roast your coffee. I, I will say that I think from my perspective, I think Valerian is absolutely correct that focusing on total roast time and development time pays the biggest dividends. I think, you know, after roast color, the next biggest impact on how your coffee is going to taste is what that time from first crack to the end of the roast looks like. Um, but everything matters. So I do think it matters. Um, you know, is five minutes enough? Probably. I find most of my roasts much closer to six minutes now in the drying phase. Oh, wow. Um, some of that came from I started doing some experiments. One of our previous guests, Meko Moriyoshi, wrote a book, um, Wasting Coffee, The Guide to Not Wasting Coffee. And there's a, a small section in there on roasting. And there's a discussion that happens, you know, kind of through the the, the text of the book 
about how to increase the solubility of your coffee as a roaster, right? Because if I can roast coffee in two different ways, and if one of the ways the coffee is more soluble, meaning that I can use less coffee in brewing, but get a similar tasting cup, well, I want the more soluble roast every time. I mean, at least if I'm a retailer, I do, but I'm wasting less coffee, which is a good thing. Um, and a lot of that discussion did focus around um, longer drying times seems to increase the solubility. Mm. So I did a few trials myself just comparing the TDS um, in coffees brewed the same way but roasted with different drying times, but to the same basic end color. Um, and it seems to start pairing out. It wasn't a scientific study. It was kind of very informal on my own time. Yeah, I like how you said that the rose development gives you the biggest dividends, I think. You know, that's that it's we now what we do in boot, uh, that we have these Fridays sometimes where we have students over and they can spend another day with us and just experiment, do different experiments on any of the roasters we have. And the last time what we were doing, I, I wanted to uh make student to roast very consistently to the same, you know. Uh, first crack and development, and he did three roasts. We used Lamula because we got cocky and we were like, "Yeah, you can roast Gesha now." And what happened that twice he did amazing job. There were small differences again in the roast development, and once he somehow went very slowly into the roast development and he stole the coffee. You know, I always thought that stalling is not a big issue. I mean, come on, it's like ten seconds, you know, decreasing. Uh, the well, stalling is when your uh, when when your temperature starts to the bean temperature starts to decrease, so I was like, "Few." I was so like, it's, Phew. A, it's a rate of rise of zero or less than zero. It's basically negative, right? So I was like, "It doesn't influence the coffee that much. It happens for ten seconds, twenty seconds, you know." Oh boy, very different world. So that dividend, then I was thinking like, "Wow, you know, look at this." I mean, we really with students who cupped very first time identified that that coffee was not you know, on par with the other two coffees, which was super interesting to me. Cool. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I love those experiments. And and I encourage Hassan to do, to set up trials of his own to, yeah, roast, you know, take a coffee and start roasting it consistently. And then try that same basic roast, but draw out the drying time and shorten the Maillard time. Try another roast with a faster drying time and a longer Maillard time. Try another roast with, same drying time, same Maillard time, but a longer development time. Yeah, cha- yeah, but change one thing at once at a time. Yeah. One at thing once. at a time. At yep. A time. So you you might end up with six or eight different roasts, probably more like a dozen because they don't always go as planned when you're doing these trials. But you'll you'll really start to learn your machine and your style. Okay. Well, we hope that it helped you a little bit. The next question is from John. With Q grading and the difference between a fluid bed and a drum roaster. If you do sample roasting for Q grade, how do those two different types of roasting techniques affect the flavor of coffee? John Bergman, Hacienda Coffee and Tea. I think I know this guy. <laughs> this is great. And I, I, I have a suspicion that this question came in from our, our, our mutual friend, John. Um, right after you and I cupped some coffee samples that he sent us um, that had been roasted. I think you roasted those Valerian on a fluid bed roaster. Yeah. So this might be a very timely question. Um, Did it on Ikawa, yeah. 
Yeah, very cool. So yeah, John Bergman, it's good to hear from you. Boy, I think um, this is a loaded question. <laughs> is he, wait, first of all, is he unhappy about the results? I don't know. I haven't heard from him. So maybe no news is good news or no news is not. <laughs> but he had some really interesting, really nice coffees that he, that he sent us to taste from his company, Hacienda Coffee. Well, my scores were higher, John, than Marcus's. So I'm the good guy here, okay? Uh, I think we were within <laughs> half a point, Blair. Yeah, but still. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think it's important to, to discuss that traditionally the Q grade um, has specified roast profiles that are um, very typical for drum roasters with like an eight to 10 minute roast. Um, with no roast defects um, and having completed first crack. So often what happens when you move a coffee to a fluid bed roaster like the Akawa, and I've spent a lot of time on the Akawa trying to craft a profile that meets SCA standards, including the time, but often fluid bed roasters can roast coffee a lot faster. Um, so kind of typically what I found if I was doing an eight or nine minute roast on the Akawa, the coffee would always taste a little flat, a little bit baked. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if I was targeting a, a roast time more in the like five to seven minute range on the fluid bed roaster, I could get a, a cup profile that was much more similar to what I could produce on a, on a sample roaster drum roaster. So I think it can impact it. Um, I think the beauty of the Akawa is that we can share profiles. And if you know the machine and you know the profile and somebody shares you one and you're kind of in similar atmosphere, um, you know, similar elevation, similar temperatures and things, um, the Akawa is a great tool because it can take the roasting equation out of it in some aspects. And we can both taste not only the same coffee, but the same coffee roasted on the same or a very similar machine following the same profile set by the software. Yeah, but you know, just just uh, John, just you know, it's uh, because you sent sent us enough samples. I calibrated the profile, so we have few profiles. For example, we just had a giant cupping of Inca Sofia, we had a giant cupping of La Mula. Both of them had a little tweaked profile, and because you sent us a. Um, like more samples, not only 50 grams, because that's what Ikawa takes. I calibrated uh, your coffees, so we hit like color of, I think that the range was between 60 and 62.5. So it, it took me some time because some of the coffees you processed in a, I don't know, what was that uh, process he used? One of the alternative processes, uh, was it carbonic now? Oh, they were um, they were using a lot of the, the yeasts oh, yeah. from... Um from scott labs from yeah. lalimond the oro the intenso and the sema yeasts and um, fermentation so i don't want to mark this podcast with an e but that coffee was a mm, right because it was very dif difficult to find a good profile for that so i hit you know the cupping color range i mean really really hard like i did like four rolls <laughs> i was like okay i'm giving up you know because yeah, and and those and I've I've had the the benefit of roasting a lot of coffees that have gone through these processing methods with these um, and have been fermented with these yeasts, and it's not easy. They do fundamentally change 
the way the coffee behaves. So it's a lot of trial and error on a fluid bed roaster to get there. Um, and on a drum roaster as well. Yeah. But what I would do on a fluid bed roaster, if I would, you know, make protocols, you know, I say I would suggest a longer resting time for those coffees than for uh, the, let's say, roasted on, on the drum roasters. For some reason, I feel that they need some time to open a little bit, you know, maybe not 24 hours, but let's say, you know, 48, 36 hours. Uh, because, you know, we cup, let's say, those lamulas, and then I had them a few days later. Boy, I mean, that was a different world. That was so much nicer. They're still very nice, but, yeah. So, but protocol is a protocol. So. Yeah, and I think, you know, what what's important is you, you know, you do become accustomed to your tools. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's a great question, John. It's something to be aware of. I think, um, you know, this is a consideration for, production roasters as well, because lots of companies um, might start off roasting on one type of a machine and grow into another one. And that could be, you know, from a Dietrich roaster to a Loring. And they're going to behave differently because of the airflow and the relationship between conduction and convection. And you might need to sort of think out of the box in order to match your profiles there. Or just be happy with the with the the way your coffee tastes on the new machine and and move forward. Yeah. That said, I think that, you know, uh, your queue was done very professionally, very well. And the fact that we were so close with our scores with Marcus proves that, you know, uh, they were fair, I think, and some interesting coffees. And we did taste some of the calibration profiles as well as you were sort of figuring out the right, mm-hmm. the right approach for roasting these coffees. Um, and definitely the coffee that we cupped and scored was much more expressive. Um, I'm, it yield a higher score than the kind of trials, um, that we, that we chose not to focus on as much. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. Next question. Well, thank you, John. Uh, and next question is from Chris. Hello, Valerian and Marcus. Uh, I'm a big fan of the work both of you do. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for a few years and I'm a former and hopefully continuing student at Boot Coffee. Um, so I have a small coffee uh, pop-up shop in Santa Barbara, California called Golden Line Coffee. Um, Marcus's sage advice and referrals have helped me a lot so far, um, as has your podcast. I'm very grateful for this. Um, uh, to my question, so sustainability and supply chain equity are core values for our company. Um, right now, I purchase wholesale roasted coffee, um, but I'm considering a toll roasting model. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts on toll roasting or advice um, on things to consider would be great. But mainly, um, I'd like your input on um, what kinds of questions I, I can ask prospective green coffee growers and suppliers um, in order to sort of gauge the sustainability and fairness of the production. Um, on the environmental side, I'm thinking about things like regenerative farming, ecosystem management, um, avoiding clear cutting of rainforests, uh, things like that. And on the equity fairness side, I'm thinking about, you know, wages, prices for farmers, economic development, um, non-extractive policies, things like that. Um, so yeah, any input would be greatly appreciated and thank you and keep up the great work. Awesome, Chris. It's so good to hear from you. And um, 
I like that I'm getting an update on how your business is evolving here um, in Santa Barbara as as you grow and going from just being a wholesale customer of a roastery to um, toll roasting, where presumably you'll be sourcing your own coffee and just paying a service fee for somebody to do the roasting. Congratulations on that. I think um, I'm going to just jump in because I think that move from being a wholesale client to being a toll roaster is a great, it's a great start to, um, to feel like you have a little bit more information about your coffee. Um, often the, the questions that folks are the most reluctant to answer, but might be the most important place to start have to do with pricing and understanding the, the cut that different actors in the supply chain are taking. Um, you know, if you sort of look far upstream, it might be questions um, on an economic basis. Well, if a farmer grows the coffee and sells it to an intermediary to process it, what does the farmer get paid for their cherries? And then what does the processor ultimately, um, you know, charge as either a service fee or what do they earn after they've added their steps? And in your case, as you get closer to the green coffee, you'll now have a better understanding of your true cost of production. You know, buying wholesale coffee from a roastery, you don't know all of their costs that go into producing that. You know, you could be paying $12 a pound for a coffee they paid $1.50 for. If you're toll roasting, you're buying the green coffee. You know what you're paying for it, and you know exactly what this person's charging you to roast it. So, so I think that's pretty powerful. It, it gives you a little bit more insight into how your costs break down um, and where your money's going. Of course, um, that, that doesn't necessarily tell you anything more beyond what you're paying an importer or a broker for that coffee. So I think that's really where the heart of your question lies when you start buying green coffee. What types of questions and how can you engage with the market to, to better understand it? So th those are my introductory thoughts. I could talk about this all day. But Valerian, what, what do you have to say? I know you can talk about this all the day. If not, this is really like a like an idle question for you. Well, my idea is, you know, my thoughts are that with Green Plantation, we have similar mission, but we don't have the potential to buy directly from direct trade. First of all, you know, we don't trust ourselves yet, you know, to just bring in containers of coffee and sell them. It's a small country. But what we do, like, you know, a lot of farmers have Instagrams and Facebooks, and you can chat them up and ask them questions. You know, of course, you can ask questions to importers too. In, in my experience, they don't always have the answers what you are looking for, or they're going to give you answers which, you know, kind of make you happy on one uh, side, but on the other side, you feel like, I want to research something more. I want to know a little bit deeper. I want to explore this question deeper. And really, like, doing a direct relation with a farmer can be a, a good question. No, and I, I mean, I think that that idea of, like, a direct relation, I'm, I mean, the term direct trade is batted around a lot, and I don't really like it. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, and, and part of the problem is, great, like direct trade, you make a handshake deal with the producer, you buy this coffee for what's a, a very good price for them and, you know, a manageable price for you. But, you know, for most roasters, like you're buying just a tiny bit of their production. And, you know, and you're taking on the risk, you're taking on the financing of that coffee. Um, if something goes wrong, who's left holding the bag? And you're just buying a tiny bit of coffee, right? Like the better option might be to find out who that producer is already selling coffee to as like uh, as an importer. 
And if they don't have a market for it already, maybe you can introduce them to an importer you like working with. Because while selling coffee at a high price is really important for producers, it's as important that they have a market for all of their coffee. And a one customer buying a lot of coffee at a slightly lower price might be much more valuable than um, a different customer buying just a tiny fraction of their coffee at a very high price. Um, so I think, you know, don't, don't fall into the direct trade trap because as Valerian says, there are other ways to find out about what's happening with your, with the producers you're working with and on the ground. Um, and I'm, I'm somebody who's not afraid to ask hard questions of importers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, if you look at an importer's offer sheet and you see a coffee for $4 a pound, I think it's totally fair to ask what the freight on board price for that coffee was. That's the bait. That's usually the price that an importer's paying to receive the coffee at a port at origin before it's um, transported. And then, you know, there could be, you know, there's probably going to be some significant markup. You know, it could be a dollar, it could be a dollar fifty, it could be fifty cents. But you know, that's okay. Everybody should be able to earn money in this price, but it shouldn't be unfair. And I think, you know, once you know the relationship to what you're paying for the coffee to the FOB price, maybe you can ask some questions about how long that coffee has been financed, how long that. Um, you know, what the tr logistics costs of that coffee were, you know, the things that the importers do. You know, they might not tell you what their margin is per pound, but I think you can ask as many of those questions as you can. Um, and that's totally fine. Well, there's one more thing, though. You know, we always think about the relation of uh, the importer and the farmer, but, you know, look into the, what the farmer is doing. I mean, many farmers are big farmers and they have employees. How they treat their employees? That's also a very fair question to them, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I think, you know, even if the importer doesn't break down the price, it's you can ask the question like, well, you know, I'm a growing business. And if in a year's time or two years time, I'm interested in buying more of this coffee and building this relationship, can you facilitate an introduction with this grower? Um, and, and help, and can your supplier help you to build that relationship with the people you're buying coffee from? Because I think when you get there and when you're on the ground, you can see the conditions of the, the seasonal pickers that they might be hiring. You can see the condition of the forest around the farm. You can see if there's a lot of, um, you know, petrochemicals and things that are in place and clear cutting, or if it feels like it's someplace grown in conjunction with nature. It's really hard. It's really expensive. It's why we have fair trade, organic, rainforest alliance, oots, bird friendly, all of these certifications. So that can be a shortcut. Um, and I don't know. My last my last comment about this is um, when you're getting to know farmers, make sure that you're also sharing a lot about your business. Um, it's really a bummer when you're just extracting information and always asking, asking, asking questions and not sharing something back of yourself to somebody that you're doing business with. Um, and I think if you're really committed to a relationship with the producer and being there in the long term, let them know about your business and who you are and what makes you unique, you unique and why you like their coffee. I saw this happen um, with my buddy, Stephen Vick, who um, when he was a buyer for a large roasting company here in the US, he would sit down with a presentation and spend like 15 minutes talking about his company 
before he ever asked the growers about their company. And it made this beautiful, transparent, open discussion. Awesome. Well, I think if you can afford it, go and visit the places, you know, see, see, see the, where the coffee is going. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you, I hope you listened to the previous episode with uh, the couple from Cafe de Leche. And that's, that's what they do. They love to travel. They have these direct relations with their uh, farmers. And, you know, they obviously know how they grow the coffee. They know how they treat their, their employees. On the other hand, they give feedback how their customers in Cafe love their products, their, their uh, coffee, right? So these kind of connections are magical. You know, they really help elevate the whole story of coffee. 100%. So, Chris, that's a great question. It's so complicated. Um, long story short, I would make a list of questions that you think get to the heart of what's important to you and be prepared to ask those of the people you're working with, be they a roasting company that's toll roasting your coffee, an importer you're purchasing from, or a producer or supplier or farmer that you're, that you're working with. And thank you for listening to this podcast and your kind words. They're really cool. And I think our next question is from another, um, another coffee buddy who's close to close to boot coffee and close to me ian bell from voyager craft coffee down in san jose i was just going to say i know voyager coffee from somewhere <laughs> hi my name is ian bell i'm the lead roaster for voyager craft coffee in the south uh south bay um and i've been wanting to hear from valerian and marcus their thoughts on how to approach blends um like what countries typically pair well together or if you could pair coffees with different densities and moisture, um, really just anything, but thank you. All right. Blends. I'm so excited. I don't know, Marcus, if you noticed, but when we talked very first time on this podcast about blends, maybe two years ago, we were very cautious. We had this kind of like, well, you know, bands have its play. Well, bands have their place, and blah 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 blah. They're very kind of like, shall we talk about plants? And today, people talk about plants all the time. It's great, and I and I know, yeah. Over the over time, we've talked about them. I think on most episodes, they've come up, and yeah, we've probably been more enthusiastic um, because they're so important. They're like the money maker. They're like the driver, the financial driver for so many roasting companies. Um, and they can be really delicious and really fun to make and have their own group of challenges. So thanks for the question, Ian. Do you know Yogaba Gaba as a, as a parent? Is it still going on? No, I don't know. <laughs> so when my kids were small, we had uh, this show called Yogaba Gaba and there was a DJ Lens and he used to sing always, go crazy, go crazy, go crazy. And that's what I think of when it comes to blends. It's time to go crazy. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's like, I, I'm not a, especially with blends, I'm not a big believer in rules. Um, I think you have to start with a goal in mind and that goal could be flavor. That goal could be demographic. That goal could be financial. That goal could be using up old coffee. That's doesn't taste very good anymore. It could be anything. Um, <laughs> And, and, and start from a goal because then I think you can start looking at different coffees, roasting them different ways, combining them in different ways and seeing what works well. I don't think that there's a, a tried and true formula that, that, that we have to follow for blending. 
No, but I'll give you some because I'm that kind of guy. So first of all, uh, before I give a formula, which is one of my favorites, let's talk about post-blending, pre-blending and post-blending. Yeah, that's, it's huge. It's such an important, an important um, part of the discussion. Right. So when would you, Marcus, pre-blend? I would pre-blend if the coffee tastes better roasting as a pre-blend. <laughs> so no, no rules about density and uh, moisture? No, I don't think it matters at all pre-blending. I think oh, that, wow. yeah, I, I think that, you know, you're not roasting one coffee bean and one coffee bean. You are roasting a massive coffee that functions as a mass. And when they're in the roaster and you've got heat applied to them, they are going to be exchanging moisture with each other. They're going to be undergoing conduction, not just from the drum, but from bean to bean. It's such a dynamic atmosphere. Um, that I think it can work. I think that things happen much more predictably when the coffees are blended roasting together than they do if you have two very different coffees and you're roasting them um, separately. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, and, I, and I've tried this. I mean, I've taken like a low grown coffee from Thailand um, with like very low density and, you know, like 11.11% moisture. And I've put them in a roaster with a, um, high-grown Panamanian coffee with a very high density. If I roast those two coffees separately, they'll hit first crack very differently. They'll crack at temperatures as much as 10 degrees Fahrenheit apart. When I put them in the roaster and roast them together, it's not like there's this big dead window of time when I'm waiting for one coffee to stop cracking and another to start cracking. It's not like I see like drastically different um, differences in when each coffee bean is entering different sensory stages like you know yellowing or maillard or bread so yeah so i don't think it matters necessarily and and i ultimately came to that because the results are in the cup mm -hmm. um i've become a much bigger fan of pre-roast blending over the years interesting and and it's and it's funny because often those blends don't taste as good on the cupping table as a similar blend that was a post roast blend. But remember, the blend and the coffee doesn't stop just out of the roaster and in the cupping bowl. It's going to be brewed on an espresso machine, on a batch brewer, as a pour over, on a ground control, whatever you're brewing on, right? And, um. And I wonder if by roasting together, you somehow are creating coffees that are maybe more uniform overall with regards to how they grind and behave in the grinder and how they extract their solubles when you're brewing them. Because often these coffees, these, these pre-roast blends don't taste quite as good just on like a straight cupping table, but after a few days of resting and then put through a brewer or an espresso machine, almost all the time. I prefer the pre-roast blend to the post-roast blend. Okay. I'll have to uh, test this, and that will be one of my first tasks. Uh, and I'll come back from Europe, for heaven's sake. I will, next week we have a course, and then I'm going to Europe. So in a month, I will test this, simply because the school which I follow is that you... So basically, you post-blend different coffees with different density and different uh, moisture content. And you pre-blend only coffees which are very similar with, with their density. But I totally see what you're saying. 
And especially when it comes to consistency, it seems to me that pre-blending everything does make sense. You know, so you can kind of come up always with the same result. Because if you're roasting two coffees and there's a little difference, you know, it's it's still you have two uh, different like uh, what do you call them in statistics uh, inputs, right? So if you have one input, it's much easier to control. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it's just something to try, and yeah, and I I keep trying it and thinking it, as somebody who very much like wants to have a lot of control and not feel like I'm rolling the dice and uh -huh. just putting things to chance. I I've my instinct has always been to blend after roasting because I wanted to like maximize each coffee and its potential on its own and then blend them after the fact. But for me, the proof has been in the cup. Um, and it's a bonus that in most roasting facilities, there's efficiencies to be had by blending before roasting as well, because you're saving a step. Definitely. Especially if you have like three, four coffees in a blend. Oh, by the way, let's speak about how many coffees to put in your blend. Mm. 12. We had a competitor. No, seriously, we had a competitor in Slovakia who said that he his, his blend is better than Green Plantation blend because he has 12 coffees and we use only two. Who knows, right? It's like there there was this great question um, asked on one of the Facebook Roasters forum about like, are you secret about what your blend components are, right? And I think, you know, and most roasters that have been around a while are like, nope, it's not a secret. I'll tell you exactly what coffees I'm using and what percentages because chances of you roasting them the same way are so slim. And, and why my, would you? Why would yeah, you? Why would I share that? No, why would you? Why would you? copy somebody else. I mean, it's, it's, you, it's such a unlimited possibilities with blends, right? No, I, exactly. But you know, but my answer to this was like, yeah, I, I'll share anything with anybody because it doesn't matter. I don't care what goes into your blend. Like I'm confident enough in my abilities as a roaster and a taster that if you gave me a blend, I could replicate that blend awfully closely um, with a fairly limited number of coffees, just based on my experience sourcing coffees, roasting coffees, and blending coffees. And I might have three totally different coffees than the six coffees that go into your blend, but I bet for most customers, they wouldn't be able to tell a difference. And why would I want to do that? Well, what if I can copy the green plantation blend so it tastes identical and go to your wholesale accounts and say, hey, why don't you taste my blend? It's two euros per kilo cheaper than what you're paying right now. So right. could be, there, right. could be a, there could be a nasty business case for that. <laughs> Not that I'm advocating doing business that way, but um, <laughs> I'm much more of a collaborator than a competitor. Um, but, but I do think that, that it, that's important. Like, you know, a master buyer roaster cupper can probably duplicate a blend um, even if they're using very different coffees. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't go with more than five. I think five is a lot. I would try to keep it to like three or less. Yeah, that that's my approach always because I want to understand what I'm doing. I think at the 12 coffees, you are just like, you know, playing a lottery. <laughs> it's like, does it work? And, and keeping even the consistency of that blend is super hard. And, you know, for, for I chuckled about that. And I said, oh, yeah, I mean, definitely more coffees. If that's what makes a better blend, then whatever. But so weird. But before you get to your recipe, I do I will just say that um you know, I I think the other piece of of crafting a blend is you know kind of have that idea in mind of what you want to make before you set out to make it. 
And, you know, the coffee that's going to be your largest component is going to kind of be the base note. That's going to be kind of the sweet spot coffee for what you're creating. And then, you know, other coffees come in to kind of play the high notes Mm -hmm. um, or even the lower notes. But, you know, it is this idea of like sort of crafting from, um, from flavor first and finding the coffees that kind of help you accomplish what you're looking for. Yeah. So my recipe is uh, something basic, which exactly works as Marcus described. And you can try it. And if this works for you, you can uh, develop it better. And for espresso blend, and it's it's not a secret recipe because I think this was the like main uh, espresso recipe from 80s all the way today. Many companies use it. You know, it's my favorite. Is when your base is Brazil, a nice, nutty, chocolatey Brazil, clean very clean and then let's say that you you use like 50 percent of it or maybe a little bit more let's say 60 70 percent of it and the rest you can try to use some african and don't shy away from let's say sundry natural very nice fruity ethiopian that gives you a very nice uh, espresso and you know we, you can play with the like ratios you can add some other coffees to it let's say if the acidity is not there where you want to maybe you can add little kenyan or colombian i don't know uh, but that's a basic recipe I like to kind of give people and play with it and then do better. Yeah, 100%. And I think it, it is just trial and error. A, a methodology for this is this idea of wet blending um, for that. So that trial and error is minimized. Right. That the, the fundamental idea of that is you take your component coffees, you set them up as a cupping, and then, you know, in Valerian's example, if I wanted to try you know, 50 or 60% Brazil, well, I would take my cupping spoon and an empty cupping bowl. I would take two scoops of that Brazil out of one cupping bowl and add it to my empty bowl. And then maybe I would go over and take um, one scoop of my Ethiopian natural and add it. And then, you know, maybe if my third coffee, I'm looking for kind of an acidic punch, maybe one scoop of my Costa Rica then just taste it wet. I mean, it's not a perfect correlation to what's going to happen when you blend um, the beans, especially if you're going to do post-roast or pre-roast blending. But, you know, it's like sketching before you pull out like the palette of oil paints. Right. It gives you an awfully good idea of a direction you might take. What was your craziest blend you ever heard of or made? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, it, it's it's often these blends that are like combinations of very different roast profiles. Um, and I worked for a company once and we had a blend like this. It was, it was a single origin blend. It was the same coffee roasted two different ways. One like a little bit into second crack, one just before second crack. Um, and, you know, like, it, like on the surface, it's like, why, right? But, you know, you could taste each of those components and they were both good, solid coffees on their own. When you put them together, it was something else entirely. It pulled out like this, like black cherry. It's like those chocolate covered cherry cordials that come around sometimes of the year. It tasted just like that. And neither component tasted like cherries. So... I mean, I think that was crazy just in its like very simplicity, but the complexity that came out of that approach. And it was an amazing espresso, mm-hmm. like my favorite, one of my favorite espressos ever. 
interesting. We did not discuss this before, but that's my exact my story when I was just figuring out the roasting. You know, when I was still like 2003 around there, uh, I did a plant called Yin Yang. It was an accident. Yin Yang meaning like one co component was dark roast, second one was lighter roast. I don't really remember how different they were because I was I was still a noob. I was just you know figuring things out. There was no boot coffee then or coffeecourses.com, you know, I had to go and just Google the random things on the internet. And that I just I just remember everybody freaking loved that espresso, including me. I was like, this is the best thing I ever did. I could not replicate it again. You know, so but it's interesting. I would definitely encourage people to play with different things. I like go crazy. I mean, do different uh, rose colors. Why not? Um, yeah, I think it's blends are so much fun. Just just go to town. Especially, I mean, Ian, I know, I know you all have a lot of great coffees. You have a lot of great single origin coffees. Studying them up and doing this kind of a wet blending exercise can be really rewarding. Um, and you can find some sort of happy accidents, things that you may not think work together that do. Exactly. More. All right. Uh, thank you, Ian. And let's move, on, move to the last question by Ben. Hi, Coffee is Me podcast. My name is Ben Weinstein. I took a coffee roasting course there at Boo Coffee in about August of 2019. And recently, I just started to roast on myself on a small drum roaster here in New York on the Arc 800. And definitely have a couple questions uh, after hitting a couple roasts on the roaster. Certainly, things don't always work out uh, the way you plan them. So that being said, a couple of issues I've been having is just the main one is bringing out overall potential to the coffee. It's not one specific issue with it, but I know the coffee has a lot more potential as far as the sweetness, fruitiness, juiciness, the body, and it seems the coffee is overall dull, flat, maybe a little baked, uh, just overall not too interesting where I know the coffee has a lot of potential. Um, another... Uh, the main issue of that, I would say, is the body. As far as all of those are concerned, even if the coffee maintains some sort of flavor, the body on the after the aftertaste in the body remain very chalky and mouth drying. And I've seen um, some reports say that might be too long of a certain phase in the roast, whether uh, whether it be Maillard or caramelization. Others say it might be too short. So looking for some general guidance in those specific areas. Thank you very much. And I hope to hear back. Cool. Great to hear from Ben as well. All your buddies today, man. <laughs> I didn't set it up. I didn't like bribe or pitch anybody. I'm so terrible at social media. Well, I posted it on the, uh, on the Bootkoff alumni group. So I guess that's why we have some yeah, people. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, you know, I haven't roasted on an ARC 800, um, before this call. And even as I was listening to Ben's question, I revisited some like Reddit forums and comments on this roaster. Um, and it looks like a really solid machine. I don't know. Do you have any experience with it, Valerian? No, I had to Google it. I'm looking at it right now. It's a cute little thing. Um, uh, looks like a great first roaster to, you know, uh, learn roasting on it's what is it like? Uh, $4,200 for 800 grams, which is, you know, not horrible. Yeah, and it seems to have a lot of controls and feedback mm -hmm. and, you know, data logging capabilities, which is really cool. Um, 
Yeah, and it's you know, and this is one of those questions where I just wish that we had more information, right? Um, like a photo of the final roasted coffee, a screenshot of a roast profile, or some information about how the coffee was roasted, mm -hmm. how large of a batch was been roasting. Um, yeah, you know, I, I assume that you know when he talks about the potential of this coffee, its sweetness, juiciness, and body. That's something that he discovered on the cupping table, but is struggling to find in these, you know, slightly larger batches. Um, and, you know, it, it certainly, if it's dull, flat, um, yeah, my, my question is, was it roasted like too slow, kind of too long a roast, not enough like rate of rise to, to really kind of drive forward these chemical reactions and um, leading to these kind of dull, flat, flat flavors. So. I think you know my my first approach would be just try a faster roast. Um, maybe it's too large of a batch, maybe you know more or less airflow. But I would just I would just try for a faster batch. But it's hard to say not knowing what what his total roast time was. Um, yeah, I I just wish that I had had more to say. But typically, if it truly is a baked taste, that would be caused from that um that stalling yeah that sort exactly. of you know no momentum especially at the end of a roast where your temperature is no longer increasing or it's just like overly prolonged development time um you know if you're roasting a medium roast bin and your development time is getting into the the 20 percent range um that could just be overdoing it I mean, the, the other side, though, is, is it truly baked, right? Or is it more of like a cereally um, flavor, which I wonder mm -hmm. from like the chalky and mouth drying comment on, on aftertaste. Um, you know, and in that case, maybe a little bit more time in Maillard reaction, like start those reactions that are ultimately leading to caramelization and sweetness and building the compounds that give you the acidity um, could be another approach. Um, so for me, maybe I would try a slightly longer Mayard and a slightly shorter development time, but that's like totally a shot in the dark. Ben, I'm just making you the offer though. Um, I think I saw an email come through from you in my Gmail account that I've been remiss in responding to, but send me a, send me your profile. I'll take a look at it. Um, and we can talk more. So there's, there's a, there's a good offer. Nice. No, I was thinking exactly the same. I was like, well, if it's flat. Uh, that's a that's a biggie, right? That something really bad happened there. Um, especially he, if you mentioned that he knows that coffee and he knows that the coffee is great, and he did something wrong with the roast. So, you know, it happened to us when we were. I was already mentioned that story when we were doing the same roast three times and the coffee stalled for a short time. But it wasn't like, you know, it was. It lost its potential, but it wasn't a horrible coffee. That said, you know, in, in your case, I don't know. What I would try, I would try a six-minute first crack. I know it's extreme, but let's go with that. Let's go six-minute first crack, and let's say one minute, 10 second development time to a color of, let's say, Actron 6, which is approximately cupping color. So if you do that, and then you do another rose, which let's say the first crack would be nine minutes, and you try one and a half minute rose development time again, hitting the same color around Actron 60, let's say, 
maybe you can Google what Actron 60 is. I know it's very hard, but basically it's, you know, around cupping color. And then you compare these coffees and whichever is closer to your uh, bad coffee or whatever, you know. Uh, but first of all, none of these should produce a horrible coffee to you, but one should be more bright and acidic and second should be like more uh, possibly sweet and uh, the body will, be, will have a nicer body. Uh, and you can kind of figure out what really happened. For sure, make, make sure... I, I would add to that, Valerian, in addition okay. to the very short roast and the slightly longer roast, do a more middling roast. You know, my concern with like that very short time to first crack is that it will still taste flat because yeah. of, you know, just because of no Maillard reactions. So, you know, like a six six minute first crack, eight minute first crack, and 10 minute first crack could be a good a good path to follow. Thank you for your question because I learned about a cool little toy I never heard about and it seems like, you know, has a potential that little thing yeah i'm all i'm super interested in these like small roasters that are really valuable learning tools but then it looks like with this roaster as well as you know if if you start a business if your business grows it can still play a role as a sample roaster as a small lab roaster it's not just uh you know something that you'll outgrow and need to move on from did you see any cool sample roaster these days uh, which is, let's say, affordable? Um, you know, I mean, I it, it's not new by any means, but um, but I had the opportunity to play with one of the um, Bullet Roasters, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, former student and someone I've kept in touch with had one and was going on vacation and asked if I wanted to put it in my garage for a few days um, or a week or so. And it was awesome. It was a super fun roaster. I could like almost right out of the box stepping up to it i could um i could use that thing and get out of it exactly what i was trying to and i roasted a bunch of batches it was very easy to do these kinds of trials that we've talked about both in the case of ben and also hassan's question um i had a blast it was great Mm -hmm. i wish that they um interfaced with cropster of course they don't yet um but if you have one and you're interested in Cropster, please write the folks at Bullet and ask them to um, make that possible. Because at Cropster, I think we're keen to make that connection on our end. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm I'm still going back all the time to uh, Hookie 500. You know, I don't know. I know there's newer models out there. I don't know what happened to it, but the very old one which I had for that money, it was incredibly learning tool i think it was like 1300 dollars with shipping and everything to united states and it was just awesome like i i was misusing that boy like crazy way you know and it was just keep going if you uh made sure that the the bearings bearings are you know greased it was just going and going and going and you could do all kind of crazy profiles so yeah it's i wish there was some roaster like that around that price which is more because that had kind of parts you know it was all set up weirdly but if there would be something like this uh uh what is it the arc but a little bit more affordable for people who are home roasters and they just want to kind of play around and then right and and the bullet's close right it's what's like the 20, price on that it's like isn't it twenty four hundred dollars twenty five hundred dollars and it's a kilo is it a gas one though it's electric okay. um yeah. but it's it is it's interesting i mean it's like it's not just a heating element like under the roaster. I think like the entire roasting drum is like sheathed in the heating element, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't 
it wasn't my machine. I didn't tear it apart, which <laughs> I would have done if it was my own. Yeah, it looks like they're like 2,800 bucks. So, you know, like it's still significantly more than that hooky, but how long ago did you buy that Valerian inflation, man? I know. That's why I don't know the recent price at all. So yeah. And, and it, and it's expensive. I get it. I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I, I don't have one in my garage now because it feels a little bit out of the realm of, um, of what I want to spend right now. Dude, you can come to the lab anytime. You have so many rosters there to play with. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I have to say, and this is not a plug. Uh, I'm happy to discuss this. It's, I'm having blast to learn to work with Cropster. I have to say its learning curve is a bit steeper for me because it has a different logic than I, I'm used to. Uh, you know, I used to kind of just load up a program and draw a curve, but here you have the whole, uh, like a storage, right? You start there, your storage, you know, you have coffee and then you import it and that's what you rose, that's how you create. But I, I just love, you know, the information the Cropster gives. It's really, really cool. I wish you guys had something for home rosters. I, that would be super cool. I agree. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it, it is this end to end solution. Um, we hear a lot from home roasters. We have plenty of home roasters who are using like the most pared down version, um, of Cropster, but yeah, it's, um, you know, where, where we can afford to put developers and development time. It's a very real, you know, time is the ultimate resource for all of us. So, but thanks. I'm thanks for that, Valerian. I'm glad that you've enjoyed, enjoyed using it. Um, I'm not enjoyed. I'm enjoying. Enjoying. Perfect. <laughs> um, Cause yeah, I'm excited to be part of the company and I've, I've always, I've always thought it was a really powerful tool in, in my work, which has been lab work for so long now, but um, in production as well. All right. Well, that was the last question, and uh, this was great. Yeah, you guys were the first brave ones. That's what a coffee entrepreneur or any entrepreneur needs to be brave one. If you have opportunity, seize it. If there is, you know, I had a grandfather who used to tell me, who used to give me uh, money, even I was like, you know, twenty year old, and I had, you know, I had my own income, you know, and and he always gave me some, you know, I don't know, like five euros or whatever. At that time, you know, and then I was like, I'm a grandpa, don't give me money. I mean, come on, I, I'm earning my own stuff. And he was like, stupid who gives, and even stupider who does not take. So there is your perfect business lesson. Take. If it's opportunity for you guys, go and take it. So go and leave your question and plug yourself, right? Yeah, very cool. That's that's great. Thanks, Fuller. And this was so much fun. Yeah, it was great. And a little plug for ourselves. You can find me at Boot Coffee Campus now, and uh, we have all our courses up for the summer and also for the autumn. Actually, one of the courses will be taught by you, Marcus. Is that correct? That's the plan. We need to sit down and compare our calendars and find find the dates, but I'm eager to come back and spend some time with students. Awesome. We have also Daniel Streetman, who will come in for the barista course. He will do one sensory course, and he will do also a coffee brewing course, SCA. And then, of course, the ultimate famous superstar, Willem Booth, is teaching the other courses. Plus, I'm coming in as an assistant in most of the courses, kind of working on my credentials to teach the SCA courses. But 
I'm a part of the Coffee Lab Pro, which we revamped. Sorry, Marcos, we changed it a little bit. And it's half roasting and half business. So Willem brings in the roasting part and I'm bringing in the business part. So I hope you guys will enjoy that course. It's not a SEA course, it's our own, but boy. Wow, that sounds incredible. There's such a need for the business of roasting. It's it's an awesome business that has its unique challenges. So it's great to hear. Yeah, and you get a discount, Marcus. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Just thank messing you. with you. Yeah. No, you're no, welcome and, anytime. <laughs> and and to everybody here too. You know, I'm I will be in New Orleans for the SCA Expo, which as far as we know is still happening. So come by the Cropster booth and say hello. Because it'd awesome. be great to meet some of our Coffee is Me listeners and we can um, maybe I can collect some more questions and stories and who knows. We should do something at the SCA event. I should be there too. So maybe something for the listeners. I don't know. Let's do a let's do a Coffee is Me event. We'll, we'll plan a, we'll plan that out, everybody. So stay tuned. Yeah, perfect. All right, man. It was so nice to hear you. Have a good one, everybody. Have a great coffee and see you next time. Bye bye.